Hey, it's Anissa, and my favourite part of the episode this week is when I give the girls the lowdown or when I try to help my older sister find love. So make sure you keep listening for more and enjoy the show. I'm Luanda Yasmin. And I'm Anissa. Welcome to episode 30 of Ethnically Speaking, the show where we discuss everything and anything affecting the UK's highly melanated communities, from current affairs to pop culture and everything in between. We always keep it 100 and this week we're talking about the New Year's Honour List, the time we spend investing in picking a partner, Netflix's new series Bridgerton and a controversial comedy. So Sophie, what do you have for us? Well, the New Year's Honours list recognises achievements and service by extraordinary members of the British public and it appoints them to the Order of the British Empire. Now, this year's list features Lewis Hamilton, Craig David. In fact, it is the most diverse list in history with 14.2% of people coming from a BAME background. But the list still remains controversial because of the inclusion of the word empire, which has connotational links to colonialization and slavery. I want to know, do you think if they take out the word empire that the awards would be less controversial and should black and marginalised communities refuse the honour because of its links to the past? Well, personally, I appreciate people who um, are open and honest about why they reject the award, but I'm also not here to turn, a, like, to turn my nose up at people who accept it. Um, I think obviously, you know, there's the issue with the word empire because of what it represents. Like the empire was built on colonialism and white supremacy. That is the price of the empire. And that's why people feel that they can't accept the award. But I'm not going to reserve my judgment for black and brown people. I think that everyone's comfortability with the terminology should be questioned. Like why, why would we put a microscope on black and brown people and not everyone who was offered the awards why are we not having a conversation with everyone about why why we're comfortable with the with the use of the term empire so you know there was a woman called Gina Martin who is a white woman and she was partly responsible for the criminalization of upskirting so she's a G but um, she said that she refused the award because she felt that it would have been deeply hypocritical of her to accept an award like that while still being committed to anti-racism. So yeah, I'm I'm here for the word being changed. I mean, I saw something that said that people were proposing they change it to um, order of British excellence. I don't know why they didn't do that. I think because excellence is already in the title. Before you get to OBE, it's something like the blah, blah, blah of excellence. To, and so you couldn't put excellence twice in one sentence. Well, let's I can't remember what the official then, sentence Are you was. sure excellence is in there? Is it not the order of the you, British Empire? Is that not No, before, before, before you say the order of British Empire, when they give it to you, they like the sentence that they decree you with starts with excellence in okay, it. I can't that, remember the sentence off my head. So then, sorry, because I was watching the interview and then the person was like, can't we just change the excellence? They were like, no, excellence is already in there. And so it was like a bit of a thing. I think that's an excuse <laughs> because if you, you have OBE and MBE, it's like order of British Empire, member of British Empire, that's what the award you're giving me 
stands for. So actually you could change it to order of British excellence and then just say something else when you're complimenting me when you're handing it over. Like that's a cop out, I think. I, I neither agree nor disagree, I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, for me, if they take the word empire out, I don't know if it makes a massive difference for me because it's still it's still the same award, it's just got a different title. And I think a lot of the people that I heard, the reasons why they rejected it, obviously there was the word empire and the things that it is um, attached to and what all the connotations, but a lot of them were just saying how kind of how you said about how hypocritical it was and um i was listening to um phil scraton scraton i forget i forget his name um i don't know if you guys know him he does like social justice and does criminology and that kind of thing anyway he's a white guy but he basically said he refused his because the work that he does is uncovering the truth and he basically felt like the British Empire was riddled with a lot of untruths. So it would be hypocritical for him to take that and like a slap in the face about the work that he has. So I think for a lot of people, even if you change the word, it's still the same award and they still wouldn't want to receive it. But like yourself, Luanda, I don't criticise anybody who's black or brown and wants to receive that award because they may be receiving the award because they're maybe changing what the meaning is or they're proud of their hard work. Um, when I was reading about Miss Dynamite who accepted her award, she was saying that the reason why she accepted hers was she was recognising everything her ancestors done with uh, Windrush and slavery and so that was why she accepted her award. And when I heard that, I went, you know, fair, fair enough. You have to do what, what feels right for you. And I think for black and brown people, you just have to decide whether it is hypocritical for you to take it or not and what it means to you. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm not even sure if it's actually the word empire that actually causes the problem. I think it's the point that we haven't reckoned with empire and what it did and that we're not willing to atone for it. We don't want to mention it. We don't want to say that we controlled the world and we did that through slavery. And that's the reason why people here, I think it's all these other things. Cause we're happy to talk about the Roman empire, the Ottoman empire. We'll talk about these things, but I think empire, British empire is so loaded because we still refuse to talk about how this country was built on the backs of the less fortunate wherever they were in the world because it covered the majority the majority of the known world at the time and i think i so much agree with luanda when she was saying about why we're focusing on black and brown people because i didn't even think of that i thought more so about a guardian article and they were like oh we're really surprised that lewis hamilton's gonna accept his knighthood and um, because he stood for black life matters and i'm like why does critiquing the country you come from mean that you can't share in the achievements or you say like, I'm still proud to be British, but I just think there's some areas where they clearly need to fix themselves up. I just hate that it has to be in opposition to each other in terms of, well, if you're going to accept it, then you're fine with everything Britain did. And I just don't think it works like that. Yeah. Well, it doesn't for me anyway. Yeah. No, I think so as well. And also because in terms of, we, we've always spoken about all the time, you know, the systematic injustices for black and brown people. It's like, if you're being recognised with this award, who knows how hard you've had to work just to even be on a list like that. So I just feel like I'm not going to dictate to other people when they can or can't feel like they should accept something um, as an acknowledgement for the work that they've done. Like I said before, like I respect everyone who's um, given it back and said, I've given it back because A, B and C, but I'm also not going to judge people who feel like, actually, I want to accept it and I feel like I have a right to. Definitely. And just to pick on what Sophie said, 
I was actually watching like a, I guess it was like a mini debate on, it was on Good Morning Britain when they were talking about this. And this was actually, I believe it was either last year or a couple years ago. So this isn't like a new thing about whether the word empire should be taken out. And obviously you've got Piers Morgan and um, a few other fancy favourites. And when they, it was, they had like a specialist in, and I can't remember his last name, but his name was Toby. And he was really trying to argue why, like all the great things that the British empire did. And he was, um, he was arguing this to like, these two black gentlemen and I think one was like an activist and one's like a hip-hop artist or something and then they were both saying basically the British Empire has done horrific things and then Toby was like oh what about all the good things the Empire did we gave you education and infrastructure and, and one of the guys Kehinde was like yeah you gave us infrastructure so you could take all the products that you were stealing from us out of the country like stop telling it's us as a favor and stop telling us it's a good thing and accept that you guys did wrong and i think they were going back and forth i actually had to stop watching it because it was just too much for me um but there is this denial about what they did and he basically toby then went to basically say that what they did the british empire did wasn't as bad as what the nazis did and it was just like there's no need for that comparison but in fact maybe it's hand on it maybe it's hand on hand but it's that people don't want to accept maybe what the empire had done and i think that is still running very rampant through current british society and i know as well like i think as well like the empire is over and I think that's the bit yes. that really I don't seem to get with why people or the government are so staunch about holding on to it. Like the empire doesn't exist. Like literally it's gone. But we still want to keep it in the name. And then when we talk, have discussions about should we get rid of it in the title because of the connotations, people are just like, no, 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 we're going to keep it. Because I think we like to still think that we're Great Britain, that we are the Britain of the British Empire. And we we don't. It's just it's just all these ties to this that we just don't want to let go of. And I think in the face of what's going on in the world with Brexit and having left the EU, not really knowing what the hell that deal says, no matter how many times Boris wants to wave it in people's faces, we <laughs> are not the empire that we were. So holding onto the name to make people feel like they're part of something special, it's just, I just think it's so ludicrous. I mean, I was gonna say the same thing because Anissa, you just mentioned Kehinde and he was the one that reminded me, like he, he literally said Kehinde, Kehinde Andrews was like, it, why are we still talking about the empire when it doesn't exist anymore? So that kind of made me think, oh yeah, why? are we and so it's it feels as though if you know if everyone's saying we recognize all of these negative things that have happened to um marginalized people because of the empire like the only reason why the empire exists is because like sophie says it was built off the backs of the less fortunate who don't get to reap the rewards not even in the present day it's like if everyone's saying this and not only black and brown people are denying the awards but also white people who want to live in a progressive world a, a progressive world it's like what exactly is it that you're clinging onto so hard that you just won't let go of? Because we're not saying don't recognise um, British excellence. We're not saying don't reward people for their hard work. We're just saying, why does it have to be attached to a legacy that is racist and colonialist? I think it's because it bought power and money. Like, that's the reason why we still want to be linked to it, because the empire was something impressive from that perspective um, in terms of how much of the, the world it covered, in terms of how much wealth it brought to a very small island, if we're being very honest. So I think that's what it is for them. Um, but Yeah, I was going to say that I think it's also like the whole like... It 
I don't want to call it like a fantasy, but the way they've idealized it, it's kind of like when we're thinking empire, they're not even thinking about the, you know, the horrific things that happen. It's just a part of that thing of like, when people question, why do we still have a royal family? Why do we still have a monarchy? It's a part of being British for them. It's this idealistic version of Britain and we're called Great Britain and we still have a queen and the queen gives honours and they still knight people. It's literally tying, it's just holding on to that the the ideal and I guess if I was romanticizing Britain and everything of course I'd be like oh okay cool I'd love to get an award from the Queen and because you you romanticize that version of Britain but then when you get into the real world and understand what the British Empire did that's where it becomes more complicated but I think for a lot of people they're holding on to it because they're still they still are romanticizing that version of Britain for them. I just wonder if everyone really links it to that idea of empire when they get the award because when I first was thinking about this I was just like I'd accept the award because as the Wanda said it's a recognition in an achievement of something great that I have done as a member as a British public member or whatever member of the British public that's what I mean <laughs> and I would be like I would be proud to accept it and I'm like would I automatically link it to empire and slavery and colon colonialization I probably wouldn't but I don't know. I think it really depends on the person because there's Benjamin Zephaniah, the poet who turned it down and he was very forceful in the reasons why he turned it down. Like, you know, he was like, it reminds me of my ancestors who were taken, of the mothers who were raped and, and all of this. So for some people, it does stir up very, very strong feelings, but it really depends on, I guess, where you stand. And I think we've all said this, like it has to come down to a personal decision. But I think the government is not going to be long in trying to avoid this question. It's going to keep coming up again and again and again and again. And they're going to have to come up with better answers than they have already. Does the Queen have another award that she gives out that just doesn't have this... Empire stink to it? Like, like does, yeah, it doesn't have this empire stink to it. Does she have like my top 20 favourite people of the year or something. Because honestly, I think, uh, no, I'll be honest, I think a lot of people also like just say that they've, you know, they've been recognised by the Queen. Sometimes they probably don't even care about the actual award itself. It's just that well, they've been recognised by the Queen. Because like, there was someone who was trying to give their award back and they said, I don't even know who to send this to. They don't actually know where this comes from. And this is, yeah, oh. and this is not specifically I thought they had a ceremony. I thought they had a ceremony. thinking of like knighthood. Maybe because this is no, just sorry, a New Year's honours list and it does, it's not necessarily saying like, you know how every year Obama's like my favourite songs and my favourite films oh, yes, on this year? It's not the same as the Queen being like, yeah, I watched Lewis no, Hamilton no, the, race. It's like... The queen, the queen actually gives them out. So it usually... Yes, yeah, so I thought she the gives world, them out. Yeah, it's the member no, of the world family saying, who gives but, it out. But who shakes the hand? But yes, who so it'll be the, the Queen. So no, who the, shakes the hand, Sophie? But I'm saying who made the list? Oh, so you don't believe the Queen made the actual list? I don't think they've ever even said that she has. I don't think <laughs> no, they've ever said she has. Do you know what I'm saying? I haven't said this comes directly from Her Majesty the Queen. This is just an honour from the British Empire. And, like, you might have Princess Anne or Queen Elizabeth okay, or someone yeah, okay. shaking the hand to say, well done. But I've seen Queen Elizabeth shake Miley Cyrus's hand. Have you ever seen the party in the USA? I don't know. Okay, so it is, it is actually the Queen's <laughs> honours list. So whether the Queen does it specifically herself or not, I know the government does have a hand in it, but the Queen gives out honours twice a year. She gives it out at the beginning of the year and she also gives it out um, on her birthday. And the 
the past behind it as well is that the queen used to give out titles. So it's come down from that. So before, for people who had done great things in the country, they would give out a title or a dukedom or a piece of land, money. Or a lord or lady. They don't do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. They would give oh, those I'd out. Oh, I'd love to be a lady. Honey. That sort of thing isn't given out anymore. They've replaced it with the queen giving out the awards and honours. The government does have a part in it. And I think that's why some people are now saying that they feel like it's been diminished because the government seems to give it out for public favours. But it is the queen that has a part in it because it is specifically the queen's honours list that she releases every every new year. Oh, I was just going to say, um, to bring it back to the first point, I'm just saying, instead of having, like, maybe these awards that have the Empire stink on it, maybe this should just be a different type of award. Maybe not so focused on the British Empire, but kind of, like, maybe who the, who the Queen likes. I'm not going to lie. If the Queen gave me an award and made me a lady and gave me some land, I'm going to take it. Do I want one of the BEs? I'm not sure. I don't think so. It doesn't come with the land and the title. But hell yeah, would I take the lady in the title? I'm telling you that for free. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing that I'm saying. Like, I think most people, if you ask them, probably link it to the Queen because, you know, it's when you see like David exactly. Beckham going and he's in his morning suit and all the people are dressed up to go and receive it. I think that's more what people linked it to than specifically because how many people even know what OBE art stands for if you went and stopped them in the in the street? Like, I would guess most people don't board, even I'm sure, know. I'm sure they'll know if they're being offered it. Sorry, say like, that again. You said the average person, yeah, but if you're specifically being offered the award, like, you'll know what it means because they'll tell you. I mean the person, but I'm saying in terms of the debate that society's having about this and whether the name should be stripped from it, for the elite list of people who get it every year, yes, they'll know, but the majority of the public, which is millions more, they wouldn't even know. So that's why I'm saying... I think, yeah, I think mm, it's, it's a complicated the issue. Yeah, I think people think of it more as an honour from the Queen rather than mm. linking it to the name. That's what I, in my personal opinion. Same. I really want, I really want the land now. Honestly, it's what I can't think <laughs> about. It's crazy. I really want to be called Lady Lisa. You have no idea. They don't get it out anymore. I want anyway. to be called Lady Anissa. <laughs> <laughs> I support oh, this <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you ladies about something else that happened this year. And it was Twitter user at Tom Scranito who responded to one broken hearted woman's request to hear happy stories about people who had found love in their 30s. And he said, I got divorced at 34. Immediately I went on to OkCupid. And over the course of two years, I messaged 500 plus first messages. I went on 100 plus first dates. And then I met the love of my life. I've now been married for three years and I have a two year old and he's extremely cute. But he also went on to say, why does it seem that we seem to put more effort into where we work 40 hours a week rather than the person who we spend the rest of that week with? So I want to know, should we approach finding love as we would approach finding the great or perfect job? You see, I saw this on, I saw this, I saw this thread on Twitter. And first of all, I want to say to Big Tommy, well done, because that perseverance was incredible. Yeah, like a hundred plus first real. dates. He, he went in and I honestly, honestly, if I, I really commend him for that. Um, it's an interesting point that he brings up because I do think, especially when we're trying to find our dream job, like we put so much effort and, um, hours into it. However, I don't know if I'd compare finding a partner to finding a job. That, like, that's just my personal preference. I personally wouldn't. Um, but I think, I think 
I don't know. I think people still romanticize love. Like you feel like you're just gonna find the one, so you don't have to, you know, like make a CV and, and knock on doors to give it out to find love. You just feel like you're just gonna find it. I do think though, because of the times that we're in right now with coronavirus and tier four and lockdown every minute, it's really difficult to find the person that you want because you're not being out and you're not getting to be social. So in this scenario, if I was older and I was looking for someone that I wanted to spend my time with, then yeah, I'd put the same effort as I would looking for a job as I would looking for a man. I'd be on every single dating app. I'd be doing professional photo shoots in the house. I would be doing FaceTime till I couldn't time the face anymore because I would put all that effort in to find the one because I wouldn't be able to be out and be social. Um, but as I said, again, it depends. I wouldn't compare it to a job because I don't know, like sometimes when you're looking for a job, you're just kind of looking for who's going to pay you the most money. And I guess you could compare that to a partner, but then it just gets a bit wild at that point. So I just think anybody who wants to find a partner, you should be particular in picking a partner. And maybe, maybe Tom has a point in that we have to be, we have to put, we have to be as vigilant when we're looking for a job, when we're looking for a partner. And maybe that's why. Maybe that's why so many relationships wouldn't work. Sorry, I'm still thinking on this. I I think that I think people should maybe change their mindset a little bit in terms of dating because I think people, you know, whenever they're looking for someone to be in a relationship with, they're kind of just thinking of the end goal. Like, I wanna marry this person and this is the end, that's my life partner, the end. But not to have like a morbid look on marriage but you know like 40 I think it's like 42 percent of marriages in the UK end in divorce anyway so it's like even if your end goal is marriage it might not always be the end but I think the reason why he brought up the job is a little bit interesting because when you're doing the work like you said and he said yeah maybe you might want the one that has the most money but I don't know about you guys but every job that I've had I've tried to enjoy the job, even if it's not relevant to the career path that I'm taking. I'm going to enjoy my time here because I have to be here, like he said, lots of hours of the week. So I think <laughs> people always have this attitude towards relationships, like when, when they were in a relationship and it ends, they're like, oh, I've just wasted two years on this person. But you didn't waste two years because you were being loved and you were giving love for those two years and you've probably learned so much to take into your next relationship, just like how you know, there's new jobs that we can now handle because of the ones that we've had before. So it's kind of just like people should maybe be a little bit more relaxed and open when it comes to it, instead of just being like, I need this, this partner, the end. Because when you have that um, type of perspective, I feel like I see this all the time. And I talk about it all the time, but I really see a lot of good people settling for things that are below their worth just because they they believe that they need to be in a relationship and they can't stand the idea of not having kids by a certain age or being married by a certain age. And so they're accepting less than they would if they were more relaxed on the quest. You know what I mean? So you wouldn't try as hard as Tom, Luanda? I'm just, just a general question. Oh, would you put I in that kind of effort? I love first dates, so I would one I would 100% be happy to go on 100 plus first dates in two years. Honestly, I like first dates are the best, so I don't have any issue with that. Um, and I just, I just think everyone's kind of uh, journey is different. So I think for him, he was like, it's a numbers game, do, 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 do the numbers, um, which is fine. And, you know, I asked my friend this one time, how did you meet? And he was like, it's a numbers game. I was just sending out friends requests and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but it works. You know what I mean? Like people find each other. But 
I just think, I think, I guess my point was that people put too much pressure on it um, instead of just enjoying the journey. I think, I don't know, I guess I'm somewhere in the middle of both of you because something that you said, Anissa, which I thought, oh, I definitely feel that way because you were saying like based on age. And I think, I think it really depends on age, depending on how hard or how far you're going to make it look like a quest for a job, like a great job. Because if you're in your, like, let me speak for myself. When I was in my twenties, I don't really fuss about finding someone like it always just happened. I always kind of met someone. There was, there was always a guy who was attracted to me and wanted to chat and, you know, had some boyfriends and all of that. Yes, Sophie. <laughs> like, Tell her she's getting like, back from day. Yes. A girl like me then stays single for long. You know, what? Do you know what? I stayed single. I stayed single. I take. I stayed single a lot. I would say in terms of being in a official relationship, but I never struggled with having guys being attracted and wanting to chat to me. It's like never getting to the final point. Like you chat to them for a bit, and you're like, ah, oh, there's no future in this. That's more what it was like for me. But. I remember worrying about it as I got older because I was one of those people like, oh my days, like I had this idea in my head when I was going to get married and, you know, if I want to have children, I got to think about that. And then I kind of calmed down and it really just happened naturally, but it still happened before I turned 30. If I think about my friends who have turned 30 plus and still haven't found somebody who they want to spend their life with, for them, it much more is a numbers game if they're online dating. And I think... Tom, when he's talking about online dating, 100% it's a numbers game. Like, it's not like going out to various bars and restaurants and seeing someone you like. You're literally having to head your bets. Don't get too caught up on anybody until, like, you find some going a couple of dates. Like, okay, this is someone worth investing time in because there's so much out there. You have to really, like, sift through it, I guess, like you would to a certain extent a job. So, for me, I think it probably depends on age from what I've seen from probably some of the friends that I have, but I think it's different for everybody. I guess it's how long you want to wait for to think that maybe it's going to like fall into your lap. And I think what you said, Anissa, about COVID definitely plays a part now because who knows when people are going to be able to go out and socialise and meet people organically. I definitely agree that age plays a part. Um, Not from my own experience, but I'm sure my older sister doesn't mind me telling you. You're this still story in the sweet spot, girl. You're still in the sweet yeah. spot. That's all right. but, yeah, but this story does involve me, but it's my older sister's story. But um, we were laughing about this the other week, so she'll be fine. Uh, obviously, she had crossed the 30 line, and me and my twin sister were wildly concerned that she wouldn't have anyone to spend her time with. And yes, she was going out bars and meeting people, but we were like, no, she needs to work harder. She wants to find the right one. So we said, you know what we're going to do, girl? We're going to put you on a dating site. This is what we were like. We were like, yes. So we were trying to figure out what dating site felt like you could get the most serious partner. But then we thought, what is the number one things she should want in a man? And the first one we thought was, he needs a job. So anyway, we found, we typed in basically dating app people with jobs. And we found this dating website called Working Professionals. And we were like, oh, fabulous. Everyone here should have the job. Anyway, long story short, we put her a profile and we got her all set up. Uh, then we called her to let her know that we had done this. So she was not happy, but it was okay. Uh, and then it started pinging off, like ping, 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 ping. Like it was just pinging. And we were like, girl, this is it. You need to talk to this one and that one and this one. And she started chatting to them for the first day, but then she couldn't, 
she said it was just overwhelming the amount of people that were reaching out and she had to reach out so she just basically was like i'm not doing this and she came off of it a day later but we were just so convinced because she was over a certain age and because obviously she was going out and being social because she hadn't met anyone yet we were like no we need to step in and really like push the needle on this but you know she rebuked our help and she went out and found a lovely partner socially in in her own time and so i think age does definitely play a part and me who is not that age yet but really was feeling for my sister i really tried and i've decided to let go no matter what age you are if you don't feel like you need to put in that much effort then you know do you boo that's all anisa do you have like an idea in your head of like an age do you want to get married um i okay yeah do you have an age in your head that you would like be like okay by this age i'm married kind of thing no i don't no i don't the thing is i i would i would i'm more certain that i want to get married versus having kids but i don't have an age where i'm like i have to be married by or if i don't get married in my life i'll be upset like i'm not not like that i'm not attached to it like that fair but I was attached to it like that for my sister. I just didn't <laughs> yeah, because she long, wanted but... it, so it's different. It's not what she wanted. No, but no, but the thing is, my older sister didn't even want it, but we just wanted it for her. It was just <laughs> I think you're making an important point there, Anissa, just like how much pressure there is, especially for women, to find someone before they're, before they're 30. Because I think when I originally saw this story, I actually felt quite sad for the woman who put the message out on Twitter. Because I was just like, for her to feel like I'm kind of, that's it for me now. I'm in my 30s. I'm never going to meet anybody. And I think that we have such a preoccupation with youth and especially in the 20s. Like that seems to be in society the peak age of anything like so a lot of the people who we see on tv the people who we promote are usually in their 20s or actors like or in like go into their 30s and then Meryl Streep said you know when she got to the age of 40 she literally started getting all these witch roles sent to her via her agent literally at the age of 40 so I think there is a preoccupation there of thinking that you know 30s too old and I don't think it is at all like now I'm in my 30s so maybe I'm a bit biased but I think more so for people in their 30s. And again, I'll say women because I am a woman. If you do want to have children and you want to have children um, biologically, you want to have children yourself and um, you don't want to adopt, then there probably is more of a ticking time as to finding a partner, even though there are other options. But also for some of my friends, it's not so much that they're desperate to find a man. Some of them are extremely successful Um have done very, very well for themselves, live by themselves, and they want someone to share their life with now. And they're like, actually, I've done all this stuff by myself. I want to share my life with somebody. I want to have companionship. Um, Yeah, I want to experience life. I want to travel with somebody. And I think that they now are feeling that gap for them that a friendship with maybe one of their female friends or even one of their male friends can't really feel, which I understand. Um, So I think there's various reasons why people might go at it really, really hard. But one thing I want to say as well, I don't want to talk too long, is that even as much as we're saying, oh, that much work to get into a relationship, sometimes when you're, no, definitely when you're definitely. in a relationship, you are going to have to work that hard sometimes like it's a job. Like even it's harder, girl. It's going to be, yeah, the time. they married for like they ain't 30, paying you double for years, it. 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, they're not just um, going through their marriage or their relationship. Just it's easy sailing. We never worry about anything. No, they have to work at it. So at some point, you're going to have to work at your relationship. So don't be put off if you have to work at the beginning. 
that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> no, honestly, I've never thought of it that way. It's like, because you do have to work in your relationship. So why wouldn't you work at the beginning? Like, that has actually challenged my thought. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually have a story about it because, like, when I was dating Jonathan, my husband, oh, gosh, he was... <laughs> He was like the first long-term relationship that I'd been in. So like I said, I like dated a few guys in my 20s, but never really had a long-term relationship. And because I had always dated guys and everything was perfect, honeymoon period, and then it just kind of ended or something happened, I never really got past the long, extensive honeymoon period to have to the, the point where you have to now push through more difficult things. And I remember Jonathan sat me down one time and was just like, you really need to put in more effort because you're not putting in enough effort. And I'm just like, well, if I have to put in that much effort, maybe it's a sign that we shouldn't be together. And he was just like, call your mum. Call your mum and answer, yeah? So I called my mum and I asked her and she was just like, you have to put in effort all the time. Like, and not because it's hard all the time, but you should always be trying your best to make the most of your relationship. And some days are easier than others. And some days you're trying and it's a breeze in the park. And then those rare times, which I'm very fortunate, you have to try and things are difficult. But she was like, you should be trying all the time. You can't just be like, things are going to coast. So that really taught me that in order to get the best out of my relationship, I have to do the best. And I don't think that's different for any relationship. Like in my friendships, I can't coast and never call my friends or be invested in their lives or remember their birthdays and all this stuff and expect we're going to have this really intimate, vulnerable friendship with somebody. It doesn't happen. So we're sold a lie on what relationships should be. So for me, put in the work, you're going to reap the results. Yeah. I think the friendship thing that you mentioned is actually quite relevant because I think a lot of the time we accept um, things from romantic partners that we wouldn't accept from our friends. And so for me, like the basis of every good relationship is a friendship and you mix that in with romance and that's when you get a great relationship. But sometimes people hold their friends to a higher standard than they do the people that they're dating. And I don't think we and should. I think, and to be honest, Luanda, I think that's one of the issues with people... Um, what you were saying earlier about people who settle for less because some people are willing, like you said, to settle for things in a relationship that they wouldn't in a great job. They were like, my job is treating me like crap. It's time to move on. (laughs) Sending out those CVs. I deserve better. But in a relationship, you're just like, you know, maybe if I just get over it. It's like, no, my friends, recognize the red flags. You would in your job. Sometimes it's just time to move on. True. True. And on the note of moving on, that brings us to the halfway mark of the episode. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel. So far, we have talked about the controversial use of the word empire in the New Year's honours list. And we have talked about whether it's a good idea to treat finding love like finding a job. And whilst we're on the topic of finding love, I want to talk about the new Netflix series, Bridgerton. Set in Regency era London, the series follows debutantes from noble families on their quest to find someone to marry. The show is less concerned with historical accuracy and more concerned with being inclusive but people have still noticed that there is a lack of dark-skinned characters. Should we be happy that a historical Netflix drama which is popular is including highly melanated people at all or does the Bridgerton casting simply highlight colorism issues in television? Okay so do I think we should be happy in short no. Um, Do I think it highlights issues of colorism? 
In short, not sure. Okay, first of all, I'm going to be coming from an opinion that may be slightly biased or out of context because I haven't watched Bridgerton or seen Bridgerton and... I don't, am I saying it right? Bridgerton? Bridgerton? Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. Yes. Bridgerton? 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 Bridgerton. Yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen the show. I will not see the show. Um, so I'm only going over things that I have read and other people have spoken to me about and threads and think pieces I've seen on Twitter and understood just kind of get my background on the show. So do I think we should be happy? I hate the the idea of we should be happy whenever we see like a black person or something. It's almost like we threw you a bone, like they get like I, I hate that wording. So for me, no, no, I don't I don't think we should be happy. Um do I think it highlights issues of colorism? I find that tough to say because as I said I've not watched the show so I can't really speak to it. But what I'm set what in my mind it's that it feels to me that Hollywood is just doing what they usually do, like putting the black people in either stereotypes typical like giving us stereotypical character traits or their version of black is someone who was lighter skinned with looser curled hairs and things like that so for me it's not that it's highlighting it because we we already know what's going on and i don't know if i think because for me it's a part of a bigger problem it doesn't just sit with colorism i feel like colorism is a part but i feel like like colorism is the umbrella in the rainstorm that is racism do you know what i mean so it's like it's a part of it but there's a lot of other umbrellas up in this rainstorm as to what i think is going on in bridgerton i am happy obviously to always see black people on screen on film acting their butts off and doing a good job obviously i have not seen it so it's a metaphorical happiness um but i i i can't personally say that i think it highlights colorism but i definitely think it reinforces hollywood's idea of black why aren't you gonna watch it um i'm not the target audience um (laughs) (laughs) sorry i don't know the target audience could be absolutely anyone but just you're a period drama person basically no well Yes and no. I'm not particularly a period drama person. And I'm also not, um, how do I say this? Shonda Rhimes' writing or her shows, her programming, I am not the target audience for. That is, that is in short. Okay. Is it because of the way it kind of portrays, are you talking from like a scandal and how to get away from, get away with murder perspective? And many other things. Okay, sorry, I'm just very interested <laughs> in that. Do, do you know what? Too I, many no, it's not too many questions because the thing is, I think Shonda's doing her thing. I recently yeah. just watched How to Get Away with Murder. I previously watched Scandal, but then had to let it go. Anyway, I've recently taken it back up, but now I've had to take another break. But I do really like Shonda. I've even read her book, but I even had to stop reading the book. I've just realised I don't partic- I am. I'm not engaged by her writing style, and that is what I will leave it at. <laughs> Girl, you know I'm going to have so many questions <laughs> when we stop filming. But so that is that. One alone. In, terms, <laughs> in terms of Bridgerton, um, I don't want to say that I was happy by the representation. I was glad about it. Not because I'm like, oh, there's black people. But I think the Regency era is an era that we have predominantly not really seen any black people in. Like one of the big things is Downton Abbey. That's something that has been named several times. And I think it's Julian Fellows who was the creator of that. And he was saying, well, you know, he's not going to lie because they just weren't black people around then. So he can't feature them, which is a lie. 
black people have been in this country since the Roman period, like since 12th, 13th century, but he just chose never to feature them apart from one, some random black guy who was a musician. And that was very stereotypical. So I can see that Bridgerton is trying to be a bit more inclusive because they said that they're not doing color blind casting. They did color conscious casting because they consciously try to include black people. Now, I definitely think they failed in the representation. I'm not going to lie <laughs> because it wasn't even that they were stereotypically black or stereotypical characters. It was just more so there wasn't anything that really made them black. But it made me wonder, do does everything need to feature characteristics of someone's black identity when there is a black character? I don't know the answer to that, but I just think Bridgerton has a really long way to go. Um, and I think it's probably going to get there because it's been such a hit. But I just think that it needs to have better representation. We don't just want black people featured. We want to have them, you know, have characteristics or say something or be something more than just a character that could be anybody. So, sorry, just not to jump in. Are you just saying that, because I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand, um, that you would want the characters, because I'm presuming the characters are just being the characters, but they're not speaking about their blackness. Would Do you want the blackness to be a bit more overt? Is that what you're... Is that what you're saying? I'm just trying to Do you know what? That's a question I would throw it to you, ladies, because I don't actually know where I stand on that at the moment. That was one of the criticisms that I saw. And I was just like, well, do we want them to feature it? Because a lot of times when we talk about it in recent years, it's traumatic black experiences. Not so much joyful or just someone being black and happen to be in the Regency era. So I'm not really sure where I stand on that at the moment. They did make one vague reference to blackness in the entire series because I've been watching it over the New Year's. But I just think, in, for me, I didn't think it was a very good series in general. I think people are kind of excited and it's mediocre. But I think I'm happy that in an era where we're not usually represented, that they have tried to at least. Guys, I have so much to say. <laughs> I bet you do. When everyone was talking, I was trying to be like, oh, I'll start there. <laughs> you guys have just said so many things. Let me just start at the end because I kind of feel I kind of feel the opposite way in terms of representation because like Sophie, you just said um, that there wasn't anything that really like quote unquote made them black, but I don't feel like that always necessarily has to be the case when, you know, we talked about this one time when we were talking about um, Halle, Berry, Halle, Halle Berry almost taking the role of a, a trans man and then changing her mind after people said, maybe not babes. Um, and we had that big conversation about representation um, in the media. And I feel like usually my biggest issues of representation is, let me just speak from a black perspective, because I could say all people of colour, but let me just speak from from being black. It's like, you don't ever get to see characters. Actually, I'm not. It's relevant for all marginalized people. <laughs> you don't actually get to see characters who are dealing with things other than what the thing is that makes them marginalized. So when you see black characters, they're usually dealing with racism. When you see characters with big bodies, they're usually dealing with their weight. They don't just get to be a person looking for love or a person in a random series that doesn't really have anything to do with their race or their appearance or whatever it is, it is that makes them marginalized. And I feel like that is the thing that aids humanization of marginalized communities is to show that it's literally not just, we said this in episode one, <laughs> it's literally not just one sad road of racism and, you know, 
in all that all of the bad stuff that we talk about which is fine to talk about but i mean like it's not our everyday lives like people are human we do all the human things that everyone else does but when we turn on the television the representation doesn't look like that so i actually appreciated the fact that these characters they hardly changed i haven't actually i can't say that because i haven't read the books they hardly changed anything about the characters from book to screen apart from their appearance and like sophie said there was a vague reference but i didn't feel like I needed something else. I didn't feel like it needed to be like, oh, woe is me because I'm a black man and it's 1813. Like I didn't need that. <laughs> like we're here for a fantasy show. We're here for a fantasy show about romance. Why can't we just be having that? Why can't we just be having balls and someone playing the violin version of Thank You Next? Like I don't need people to be struggling every single time we turn on the television. It's nice to have representation that is a lot more humanizing than that. Yeah, I think, like I said, I haven't, I never actually said I made up my mind on it. So I said, I'm not really sure where I stand on it. And I think I'm saying that's where some of the arguments have come from. Um, I think it was in the Huffington Post or Refinery24, whatever. They were saying how their thing is like, some people said, why didn't they talk about being black? And like you said, Luanda, I'm like, mm, I'm not really sure where I stand on all of that. Like for me, I'm like, they could, they couldn't. It's all kind of a mishmash for me because even though you're saying it is fantasy, which of course most of it is, some of it is based on facts in terms of um, Queen Charlotte and Mad King George. So there were elements of that. And I think that's why some people have really kicked against it because they're like, oh, well, some of it's historical. We should just be making. And I'm like, I'm like, drop me on that. Because like you said, if you're going to feature Ariana Grande and you're not protesting, don't say anything about the people being black. It doesn't make sense. But I think in terms of like the colorism debate, I was uncomfortable that most of the main characters who were featured of black descent were mixed raced or looked mixed raced or were light skinned and that the darkest in black people were literally the extras. Um, and that's where I think that Bridgerton has a way to go. But I guess I kind of thought about it like a lot of Shonda Rhimes things like Grey's Anatomy that became private practice that became scandal how to get away with murder station 19 like you have to start somewhere so I'm gonna give Bridgerton a little bit of rope hopefully not to hang themselves <laughs> <laughs> and see if later series they use this as a jumping off point to feature a much more diverse cast like maybe one of the love interests can be Asian or like from a different part of the world and not just black so Hopefully we'll see more. This is the first one that she's done for Netflix. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of the colorism, that is something that I definitely noticed. And it kind of frustrated me as well, because it feels like not just not just with Shonda's things, but in general, like if we were to look towards dark skinned successful actresses, they're usually over the age of 35. But when we're talking about the young wives or the desirable, you know, debutantes and things like that, they're, they're nearly almost always mixed race, light skinned black. And so it, it still says something to do with desirability and femininity when you're when you know I saw lots of opportunities for there to be dark-skinned black women and they were either not dark-skinned black they were either not black at all or they were light-skinned black and so if we're talking about a show which is trying to be intentionally inclusive yeah. why is it that even when we're trying to be intentionally inclusive there is still the lack of dark-skinned female representation because I don't really feel like there was a there was a great you know character who was a dark-skinned black man and then the main 
uh, black character. He's like a biracial black. So there was a lot, there was a good mixture, I'd say, for the men. But again, when it comes to the women, there's one dark-skinned black actress. And again, like I said, she's over the age of 35. She's a brilliant actress. And so is the queen. But that's why I wanted to say in terms of the difference between, you know, you mentioned, Sophie, the difference between a colorblind casting and a color conscious casting because they were inspired by the fact that many historians believe that Queen Charlotte had African heritage and they used that as means to to be inclusive with the show. And that's not to say that there weren't black and brown people in Regency era London because there were, but obviously there wouldn't have been that many and it wouldn't have been casual to have an interracial relationship. But I don't have a problem with the fact that they've made it seem like it would have been in 1813. That's fine because I'm here for the representation. But like I said, again, it just always feels like no matter how inclusive we get, like dark-skinned black women, especially young ones, are always fallen by the wayside. But that even to like, I, I 100% agree with you, Amanda. And I know that we speak about they were doing like a conscious casting, but I still feel like a lot of their unconscious biases still riddle their way through in the casting because it's that idea of, or the notion that some people have had that young, darker skinned women, whether you are black or Asian, whether, whenever you're a darker tone and you're young, that were not the objects of desire. We just are not seen that way. And I think that's what is that probably may have played a part, I can't say for sure, but when they're casting someone and they're thinking, oh, he's going to be a lead designer, they might not think, oh, it's going to be the... I, I think it could be a bit of an unconscious bias there, even though they were trying to cast consciously. Mm. I feel that, it's... and I'm here for more South Asian representation in the show. Oh, well, hell yeah. And the darker two... South Asian ones, please. Darker please. South Asian ones. Yes, yeah, please. There were two South Asian people, like, I counted two, two South Asian people that had lines, and both of them, like... They could have been not. They weren't so like they would have been white passing, but they could have been maybe a biracial black person, Very maybe fair. a trans white person. So I'm absolutely here to see like dark skinned South Asian people be in the desirable, rich, high society roles as well. And they've got time. They got this woman has written a lot of books, so we have room for lots of. Series. <laughs> I'm gonna give them space. There's room. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm here for. Giving it a bit of space because it's actually like an eight-part book series, this specific mm. series, because it's on based on every child in the family finding someone. So we got like potentially eight series if it carries yeah. on being this popular, which I'm yeah. sure it will. But I just wonder, do you think that we're just never pleased? Because that's something I had to ask myself because when I saw some of the responses that people had, I'm like... Guys, if there had been no black people, would have been complaining about that and just said, can't we get some black people? And then we get some black people and we're just like, we're not happy with those black people. I just, part of me was just like, let's just see where it goes. Like Shonda Rhimes, she's not the person who's not here for diversity. Like we can say a lot about her writing or whatever, but she started off Grey's Anatomy. The main character, they said, apart from the main character, um, everyone else was a colorblind cast. And that's, that was a colorblind casting. Whereas you see with Scandal, once she was able to make that success, she was able to try and put more people in position. And I think very much because this is the first one again, like I said on Netflix, they're just kind of towing the line. And I'm sure that more of the stuff that she brings, because she has a multi-million pounds deal with them, she's going to do much more representation. 
I feel like that what you just said, Sophie, just goes back into what Anissa started her statement with because you're like, oh, well, we're never just going to be happy. And Anissa says, like, you know, I can like this or I can't like this. I don't want, I don't, I shouldn't feel like I should be silenced just because you've essentially thrown us a bone. And for me, it's like, I'm pleased enough with the inclusivity for me to watch all of the episodes of this show, but it doesn't mean that we still can't talk about things that could be improved. And I don't see anything wrong with constructive criticism because it's like, we're never going to learn if we don't do it that way. If I think people being silent is the thing that holds us back from be- progressing to the point where everyone's included. So there's nothing wrong with having a conversation about like, actually, I think it's great that they included all of these types of characters because really they didn't have to. Like, I'm sure this woman, when she wrote the book, she wasn't thinking that the Duke was black, but she's happy for the Duke to be cast as a black man. So that's progression for me. But we can but it's not a destination. It's more like a journey. So we can still talk about what it would look like for us to get to the next step. You see, I'm a bit on the other side of the fence for that. Like, Like, I agreed what you said, Luanda, but I do think, and I'm not speaking for black people, I'm just talking people at a point, we've got to an age where everyone is super critical about everything and they're not okay to just let art breathe. Do you know what I mean? Like, they have to have an opinion they have to be upset about something i call them the moany jonies or the moody trudies like they they just need to be upset about something and even when i i'm with you there's nothing is ever perfect so something can always improve and get better but i usually feel like and i don't know if it's just the way social media and things work you usually just hear a lot of the negative before you hear the positive and so for me it's just like sometimes you just have to let things breathe a little bit does that make sense i don't know if yeah yeah, it makes sense, girl. It makes sense. So from dramedy to comedy, comedian Ricky Gervais has recently come under fire from his fellow comedian Frankie Boyle for using trans jokes in his set. Frankie Boyle has labelled them as lazy and other comedians such as Dave Chappelle have also come under fire for making fun of marginalised people in their set. Does 21st century comedy need to be controversial to be funny? And should comedians always be politically correct with their gags? Or have we as a society lost the ability to take a joke? I think this is an interesting one for me because I think that comedians are known for being controversial, especially some of the best ones, like the ones who have been the most famous and I would say maybe top tier, quote unquote, but they have played fast and loose with that controversy line now it's not always in fact it probably is always a joke at somebody so I'm not talking specifically about Ricky Gervais and the kind of trans jokes he's making but I'm just really saying that comedians are yeah are known for pushing the envelope and I just wonder what joke is not okay because I think that for me is the difficulty Because if we're saying that we can't make jokes about trans people, I'm not saying that we should, let me make that very clear, but then we're not going to make race jokes. Is it then bad to make jokes about Donald Trump because he's a person and he could be offended and hurt? Um, Frankie Boyle himself got into trouble about COVID jokes that he was making and people saying, well, those weren't appropriate because people were dying. I think it's very difficult to find the line of controversy because I think so many of comedians' jokes, it really is how people personally relate to them. Um, So I think it is very difficult. And I think that I don't mind um, comedians being a bit controversial, but it depends about where where those controversial jokes lie. I don't know where the yardstick should be, if I'm being honest. 
Yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you. I do feel like it's a little bit of a blurred line because like my understanding of the nature of comedy is to be, I, I don't wanna say offensive, but you know, to kind of provoke uh, something in, in, in people, whether it's laughter or uh, like, a, oh my gosh, like they're, they're doing it to be salacious. Like that, that's, you know, that's their job. Um, I'm not particularly a fan of stand-up comedy. I do really like, like scripted comedy, like rom-coms, but stand-up comedy isn't my bag. Like I, I never find any of it funny. Um, and I don't really like its style because like, it's kind of like what you said, Sophie, like there's never not a joke that doesn't offend anyone. Like jokes are at the expense of someone. And so someone somewhere sometime are going to get offended. The issue is sometimes people have a luxury of the kind of offense they have, because if you're a marginalized group, then obviously people are always offending you. So it's kind of like, it's not that funny. You're kind of tired of it. But if you are a group that's more privileged, you might be like, oh yeah, I can laugh at myself. <laughs> because you have the luxury to kind of let it roll off your back. Um, but, it's it's a hard line because I think comedy is meant to be offensive and offends people. Um, whether we should police it, policing it is also difficult because I kind of like, for me, and I'm not talking about the trans jokes, I'm just talking about comedy in general. It's somebody's form of expression and form of art. And I don't want to tell them what to do with their art, if that makes any sense. Like, I don't want to limit them, but then it becomes difficult if the art that you're making is hurting people. So, but then if the very nature of your art is to cause offense to people. So it feels like you just go on in a circle, like round and round. So with comedies, for me, it's kind of hard to put the needle on it. I do think if a group have spoken out and said, hey, your jokes have made me feel X, Y, Z, you should really take a look um, at the jokes that you're making, but then it also comes down to that particular individual. Like, I'm sure as black females, um, we've heard a lot of jokes about black people, and we maybe some jokes we've laughed at, some maybe some jokes we haven't found offensive, and I think that's when it comes down to the, um, the individual person of what offends them and what doesn't. Yeah, it's a blurred line from us, confusing. Um... So I think, you know, I believe in freedom of speech, but what I've noticed when people get into trouble for something that they've said and they try to remind everyone of their rights to freedom of speech is that they're actually asking for their right to speak without any repercussions. And so if we're going to go off the whole, you know, every human has a right to freedom of speech, that means every human has a right to respond to something that you've said, whether positively or negatively. Um, and I think when it comes to comedy, I think the issue lies with people who have privilege making jokes about marginalized people. And it's like, you're not including them in the joke, you're making them the punchline of the joke. Whilst you stand on stage, not having to deal with any of the things that makes them, you know, get mistreated. And then on top of that, you're going to be like, oh, and then let's also laugh at these people. So I definitely understand why people are speaking out and saying this is lazy, because a lot of the time it is. And a lot of the time we use comedy as a cloak for things that are actually transphobic or homophobic or racist. Because I don't mind when people, when I see like a black comedian making jokes about racism to like, you know, take the weight off it. And so everyone can just have a night where they're laughing about a bad situation rather than a white person making a joke at a black person's expense. And so I feel like you're just translating things that would have been 
that that is so problematic whether you say it plainly or whether you try to say it in a stand-up comedy routine but like at the same time like I said I believe in freedom of speech so I think comedians should make whatever set they want to make for the audience that they want to create it for but they have to understand that not everyone is going to fall into the category of finding it funny not everyone is going to be your audience so just accept that if you want to make those kind of kinds of jokes there is someone who's still going to buy a ticket to that gig but it's just not going to be everyone. And for the legends who've already had the height of their career, you can either like accept a smaller audience or move with the times. That's it. Yeah. And to be honest, a lot of these comedians who they're talking about, like Ricky Gervais is not losing sleep over what Frankie Boyle says. Let's be honest. <laughs> Dave Chappelle is probably not losing sleep about what people are saying about his jokes because like, I don't agree with the trans jokes. Like, and I think it's very difficult because even when you're saying people making jokes about marginalized groups. So yes, if we want to rate a hierarchy of injustice or marginalization, trans would probably come, black trans would probably come under black. But I think that's where we have the difficulties when we start to rate people's marginalization and injustice. Well, like, because he's a black man, it's not appropriate for him to make jokes about black trans people because they're worse off. And I just feel very, very, I don't know where I stand on that because again, when we heard there was a certain influencer this year who was talking about a marginalized group and then people saying, well, she was like, well, I'm from a marginalized group and my group is more marginalized than your group. And it's just like, we need to move away from that. We need to start talking about justice for all groups, for all marginalized people. So that's why I have a difficulty. And something else that you said, Lawanda, that I think was really interesting because there was a female comedian who was from Asian descent. I think her name was Kim, Krim, Christina Wong. Her name was Christina Wong. And she makes jokes about people from Asian descent. Um, and she talks about mental health and this and that because she says she's trying to bring light to the stigma that's attached to it. And then people from her community, she said, would contact her and said, stop doing that because it's making us look bad. But then she's from the community. So, so does she not get to make jokes about the community? Like, it, it's just such a tricky issue. And I think something that Anissa said earlier on also plays into it is that we are now a generation who takes up arms for everything and in some instances it's good but I think in sometimes it does go to the point where not stopping freedom of speech but sometimes we're just not accepting to like really hear anything if it causes anyone offense then we should never hear it again and I and I've said it before I think that's going to take us to a dangerous place yeah, this is it's honestly it's really tough because like I hear every I think everyone is making like super valid points and that's where the like it becomes so blurred because nobody wants anybody's feelings to be hurt at any joke but this is the nature of their job and so it just makes it so like it makes it so tough I I there's certain jokes that I could tell you like for a hundred percent absolutely not like it sh i just wouldn't even listen to like i'm just not here for it and that's jokes against you know trans and um the lgbtq uh, not not particularly black jokes and i know that sounds a bit wild but like things against like abortion and rape things like that i can't like i just cannot but that's my limit and then everybody has their own limits and so for me like I could be saying what's my limit but somebody else could say that limit and by the time we all say our limits it's like there's almost not that 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 form of art is now gone so the question is like do we want that art do we not like that that's kind of 
that's the line I'm sitting on. It's tough. <laughs> Sorry, it's just I'm like kind tough. of. I'm kind of tired of people saying that like this new generation has such an issue with everything, but always complain about everything. Like I'm really tired of that narrative because I think the difference is there have always these things that people are talking about now have always been an issue. They have always been oppressive to people, but not everyone has had the like the personal power or the platform to talk about it. And that's the difference. So that's why when I say Yes, I believe in freedom of speech, but I also recognize the fact that people actually just want to speak without there being repercussions. And that's the main issue, because especially with people who are, like I said, these legends who are middle aged now, they're like, but I was making trans jokes. I was making these kind of jokes, to these communities and no one was saying anything. So why can't I still do that now? It's not like it's all of a sudden been a problem. It has always been a problem, but there have been certain voices that have not been heard until today. And that's why it feels like everything is an issue because everyone's talking about everything. But I don't see that as anything apart from a good, apart from good, because if you go on the Internet, yeah, you're going to find some extremists on like either end of the spectrum. But at the end of the day, there's so many conversations that were happening now that weren't happening 10, 20 years ago. And that's the difference. It doesn't mean that people are complaining. It means that people are being open and honest. Do you think that people have already all of a sudden started to be offended by new things? Or do you think that people have actually just started to be vocal about the things that make them offended? Because before people just had to sit there and take it. And now we can talk about it. And I don't think that's a bad thing like at all. Do you think you're in the majority or the minority of people who want to speak out about comedy or things that are happening in films or, um, yeah, do you think you're in the majority or minority? Well, I'm an opinionated person, so... I was going to say she's in the majority. I... No offence, Because <laughs> I Because I think that for as much as you can find people who are willing to speak out about Bridgerton um, and the amount of people that are willing to speak out about comedy you're going to find people who are from those groups who are also like, I don't really take it as a big deal. And I think that for me is where the argument falls down a little bit because I don't think it's, well, now that we know that it's wrong, we all just want to speak up about it because I know lots of black people who love Bridgerton and they were like, didn't see a problem, didn't have an issue, didn't think there was anything need to speak out. Like we're saying, there's still going to be people who are going to go and see Ricky Gervais. There's still, who might be from marginalized groups. Like in Dave Chappelle's comedy, when he's talking about his trans jokes, bear with me here. He's talking about a trans person again, who came to see his show. And he said that person was sitting down and laughing their heads off and they found it funny and this, that and the other. Now, I don't know if we can take one trans person laughing at it, but I'm saying I don't think that we should take it as, well, people are just speaking up because they want to and, you know, this is the best thing. Because I'm like, well, not everybody's offended by it, but the people who are speaking out about it are probably speaking the loudest about it. And when it comes to cancelling people now, that's where I have an issue. I have no issue whatsoever about people facing the consequences of what they've said or done. That's not it. It's when they're kind of like, there's people who are like, burn all of the books that that Harry Potter woman wrote because of what she said and burn this and cut that person off Twitter. And for me, I'm like, where does it end? Because we're getting to the point, someone has one strike and they're out. That's what I have an issue with and, when it, and where it's going. That just feels like now we're getting onto cancel culture and things like that. And I don't really feel like you understood my point because it's not that people who are speaking out about things are speaking 
out about things for everyone. It's like individualism. So if I'm talking about something that's important to me, it's important to me because it's important to me. And that's why I said when we were talking about the honours list, it's like, yeah, I'm going to respect Benjamin Zephaniah for um, not only giving it back, but being vocal about why he's given it back. But I also don't have any judgment for Lewis Hamilton who wants to accept it. So it's like, I don't understand what the issue is with people voicing their opinions if all that it is is people voicing their opinions. Like, I don't... I guess the issue is for me, if I could probably make it a little bit clearer, is that as much as it might be an individual, one person, like, a small handful of people's voices can get a show cancelled in this day and age. Do you know what I mean? A small group of people saying something can get someone fired from a job. So it's not just the person who speaks out has no effect because we are now seeing it doesn't have to have much of an... um. It doesn't need to have thousands and hundreds of thousands of people saying something. It can be a handful and suddenly someone is pushed to the side and we never see them again. So that's where the link is. Cancel culture doesn't actually, it doesn't actually really exist to the capacity that people think that it does. Because I'm never here for cancelling people ever. Like I'm always here for just like, because I just think humans grow. So I'm always just here for having important conversations, which is why I said that people starting these conversations is a very good thing. I'm never going to see it as anything else, but it's like, well, never say never, but it's like people want to be on the internet and be mad at one person, but it's like that person then continues, especially if that person is, you know, more privileged than the people who are speaking out against them. Most of the time they just fail upwards and there isn't really that many bad things that happen to them. They might have a couple of days where they have to log off the internet, but they don't really have everything stripped away from them as in this dramatic sense as like we make it seem to be. I think most of the time what really happens is people raise an issue that needs to be talked about. Like Halle Berry, when she almost took that role, people were like, okay, we'd prefer if you didn't because A, B and C. And then so she's like, I'm going to take the weekend, I'm going to read about it and then I'm going to think and then I'll come back here to continue this conversation. And that's all that it should be. But obviously it doesn't always end up like that, but it's like, we're never going to get to the good versions of the end result if we don't try to speak out against things that are important, period. Can I, should I jump in? I can jump in because I had a thought, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, the, the, yes, beginning, so. the beginning of this exchange of words, I did um, have a thought because I kind of understood what Sophie said and I understood what you were saying, Miranda. But I think it's the idea that um, if... Like, when a lot of people speak out or when anybody speaks out and says anything, I think nowadays, and I, I I don't know if it's because of COVID or anything, but now, for me, sometimes, like, the internet hasn't been, like, this happy, lappy place of where I can go and get catch a giggle and escapism. I feel like every time I log on to Twitter, I'm seeing a group of people complaining about something. And so it does feel like our, genera- our generation... Um, sometimes always has like a bone to pick but then I also understand that the previous generations didn't even have the privilege to even say that was a bit foul what you did xyz so I understand that these aren't old these aren't new issues they're the same issues that we're talking about but I do understand how sometimes if you're on the internet depending on what your feed is like it can almost feel overwhelming like all we're always doing is just being upset about something and complaining about something so i i kind of saw the middle ground in in that Mm. 
I don't, like, I don't know what your feet. Yeah, because I don't know what your feet looks like or anything. But you know, like last yeah, it's year. Yeah, that's what. I'm, that's what. Because remember, remember last year. Because a few, I feel like they came for Letitia right too hard, and I was like, girl, exactly. I thought she made a joke. Exactly. Because like, la, la, last year, a few times, and I think I said it on the show. Like I kept taking breaks from social media because I couldn't. My, yeah. At least my feet, and these weren't people that were usually um giving such heavy topics but everything was like heavy and upset and covid is already like its own mental battle in itself i just couldn't keep feeding into that so i kept having to take yeah. breaks and so it felt like for me personally at one point that everything was a problem we could never just have one day of happiness but there was also understanding but the reason why I felt like that was because when they were saying what was wrong, I completely felt those issues to the core. I felt it so strongly. It charged me. And that was all because these were the same issues that we kept talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're just getting ourselves confused between, like, internet trolls and people who are actually complaining yeah. about nothing because I've seen them and people who are trying to raise important conversations. And a lot of the time people get modelled up together because it's like, oh, you're talking and you're talking loudly and we want to be happy, so let's not do that. But at the same time, there's a lot of issues that are like important to raise. And then at the, on the flip side, there are trolls. I've seen them, I've met them, they've been in my DMs, <laughs> they've been in my comments. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not here for them either. So it's like, there should definitely be a balance, but at the same time, like what you said, Anissa, you're like, I don't know what your timeline looks like when it's, it's if we have an issue with these things and just scroll past or look away or unfollow. We can actually accumulate to the best of our ability what we want to see. And, you know, we've we've made a lot of references to the internet, but I'm actually just talking about speaking out in general. But, you know, we could keep going. I'm going to stop talking. We could talk more. <laughs> yeah. And, well, just to kind of wrap up what you said, Luanda, like, it's all, it's all about having balance. And I think when you see something that offends you or is not for you, you just have to disengage. It's just the unfortunate yeah. thing but that's just that's just what you have to do anyway yeah, thank same you same with comedy <laughs> yes exactly just disengage if, if you can um or go on twitter and raise hell <laughs> balance <laughs> so find yourself on so thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of ethnically speaking and let's keep the conversation going do you think comedy should be politically correct let us know in the comments below and for even more of us be sure to click the link in the description for access to extra ethnic a special segment available exclusively to our email subscribers and for a summary of everything we've spoken about today make sure you head over to unitedmelaningroup.com slash es 030 there's a link in the description below for that as well if you are watching on youtube don't forget to subscribe comment like and hit that notification bell so you don't miss a thing we'll be here the same time same place next week so make sure you wash your hands wear your mask and you stay safe <laughs> <laughs>